Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Let's open our Bibles together. We are going to look together at something in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible is a collection of different books and letters that old saints in the faith wrote, and Paul was an apostle. That means he was one of the, f- the founders of the Christian church in the first century, and he finds himself in prison around AD 62, and he's in a city called Rome, and he's facing execution. He's, being pers- he's been incarcerated for his faith, and he doesn't know whether he's going to get out of prison or not. He's in need as well, because in those days in Rome, in prison, you wouldn't get three square meals a day, and Netflix. You wouldn't have that. And so you would rely on external help and friends to come and bring food. And so this church in modern-day Turkey called Philippi that Paul had planted a few years previously heard that he was in prison, and so they sent this guy called Epaphroditus, one of their core team, like you guys going to India. They sent one of their core team called Epaphroditus with some food and some money. 
And so they sent him to Rome to care for Paul when he's in prison. Epaphroditus gets sick along the journey. And the church in Philippi don't know. They hear he got sick, and it was pretty serious. And they don't know if he died or not, if he made it or not. There were no cell phones, there was no Skype. And so he didn't, they didn't know if he'd made it or not, but he did make it. And so Paul writes a letter back to Philippi to say thank you, to send Epaphroditus back to go, I'm still alive, I made it. Um, and then thirdly, to encourage them to encourage them in this is what Christ has for you. This is the fullness of who you're called to be in Christ. I love that Paul is in prison facing execution and his first thought is to write a letter to encourage others. And we're going to dip into that letter a bit today and look at what Paul is writing to this church. And in chapter 3, where we're going to pick it up, we're going to look at how Paul encourages the church to be ambitious, to be ambitious. Ambition is a very confusing concept in the Christian church. Many people are ambitious naturally. We love America. I'm not from America. My wife's Australian. I'm from England. And we culturally aren't allowed to be ambitious in England. (laughs) Culturally, we get told off for thinking way too much of ourselves. And if you do, you get chopped down straight away. That's why we have newspapers in England, to chop people down (laughs) who feel that they're getting above their pay grade. Um, But in America... In America, you guys love to be ambitious, and that's why we're here. We love to be part of this, because you guys naturally love culturally to be ambitious, and yet we can divorce ambition from our Christian life. We can think our faith on Sunday is one thing, but then our ambition is untouched, and yes, we want to be a CEO. Yes, we want to be famous. Yes, we want to look hot and all that kind of stuff. We have, um, we have those ambitions, and we don't see how they interrelate, and we don't even think they interrelate. This is just, it's good to be ambitious, and then we, we know Jesus. But if you've been around in church for longer than a few weeks, you start to hear about this thing called you want to do what Jesus wants to do and you want to follow him. And suddenly you start to go, well, is it wrong to have ambition? Is it wrong to have ambition? Should I just kind of surrender everything and go, well, whatever Jesus wants, I don't know, maybe he just wants me to do this for the rest of my life and it's wrong of me to think more of myself? Is it wrong to desire that promotion? Is it wrong is it wrong to want to be wealthy? Is it wrong to be want to be famous? Is it wrong to have ambitions as a church to see L- Long Beach and Orange County and LA and the world kind of blessed through what God is doing here? Is that above is that getting beyond ourselves? What is ambition? And we see in this text that Paul was fiercely ambitious. Fiercely ambitious. And I want to encourage you guys today as we are being encouraged that as churches we are to be fiercely ambitious. And as individuals in your life with the Lord that we want to be fiercely ambitious. But what we see in this text today is that Paul separates out what it means to be rooted in ambition that is selfish as opposed to rooted in ambition that is of the gospel. So we want to look today what it means to have gospel ambition. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at this together. I think it's going to be on the screen. And we're going to pick up this text in verse 4. Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Just to pause there, what Paul is doing, he says, if you ever think there's a ladder to heaven, a ladder to knowing God through your own performance, man, I had the best ladder going. I had everything going for me. Like I was an eighth dayer, which means yeah, I was circumcised. You know, I'm not, I didn't buy into the Jewish faith. I was born and I'm an eighth dayer. I've done all these things, but at the top of the ladder, I found there was nothing there. That actually the Christianity, the gospel is simply, we don't climb the ladder, but Jesus climbed the ladder down to us to put us on his back so we could go and be with him forever. That's the beauty of the gospel. And Paul wants us to know that. He said, verse seven, so therefore he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered all the loss of all things. And count all these things as rubbish. In the Greek, that is a very uh, rude word for human excrement. That's how much Paul thinks of performance-orientated religion. It'll destroy you, and it smells, man. Um, (laughs) I've suffered all things and count them as human excrement in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends or that is received simply by faith. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Just think that's the ultimate power play right there. If you disagree with me, um, don't worry, God will prove I'm right eventually. <laughs> don't try that. I think the Apostle Paul tried that. But if you have in disagreement with Darren, don't use that verse. Don't worry, Darren, you'll see my way eventually. Um, only, says verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you now and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to, to subject all things to himself. Amen. Let's pray together. So, Jesus, as we open up your word right now, we pray by your Holy Spirit that your words would have life to them, that your words would be sown like seeds in our hearts and our minds, that they'd bear much fruit. Jesus, we look at these scriptures not to know about you, but to know you. And so we pray as we study them together, as we look at them and reflect on them together, that you would, by
by your Holy Spirit, walk off the pages into our hearts. Transform us, Jesus. As we surrender our ambitions to you and look at what that means, we pray that in all things your kingdom would come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Napoleon Bonaparte said this. He said, great ambition is the passion of a great character. Those endowed with it may perform very good or very bad acts. All depends on the principles which direct them. And what we're looking at this morning, Paul is going, this is ambition that's directed by the principles of the gospel. That we're fiercely ambitious, but we want to be directed by the principles of the gospel. So we're going to look at some of those gospel principles together that shape our ambition. The first is this, gospel ambition is Christ-focused. Is Christ-focused. Look at verse 10. Paul says this, Oh, very simply, oh, that I may know him. And look previously in, back at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. The greatest ambition for Paul Amongst all the other ambitions to plant churches, to spread the gospel, to take the word of Christ to the Gentiles, he's in prison for this amazing strategy that he had. But at the end of the day, when he's saying, this is what I'm truly about, this is the top highest order of my ambition, he says, is to know Christ. The Hebrew concept of knowing was heart, heart and mind, um, heart and mind. That it wasn't just knowing about, what it was a lived experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. No matter what you guys do here in Long Beach, no matter what you say to people in India, no matter what you do across the whole world, and God's got great plans for you, the one thing that is the top of your agenda is that you celebrate knowing him and introducing others to know him. Paul could have said, oh, that I may plant a church in Spain. That was, high, that was what he was wanting to do. Oh, that I may encourage other people to preach to God. Oh, that I may even help other people come into the ministry of the Spirit. All these things are wonderful, but Paul is obsessed with knowing Jesus. I met Jesus when I was five years old. I was, we were, in, we were quite a poor family in the north of England, and um, my brother, who's six years older than I, we shared a bedroom she had a, a small bed, actually. And it was a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. We'd gone to bed. And my brother had clearly learned in Sunday school, in children's ministry, that it was important to bring other people to faith. And the way to do that was to get them to recite a certain prayer. And so my brother looked at me and thought, ah, easy pickings. <laughs> this is easy. So he just turned to me before we went to sleep and said, Gare, repeat after me. And if you have an older brother, you know that you simply obey your older brother. And so he just said, repeat after me. I went, what? He went, just shut up, repeat after me. And he went, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. And I said this prayer very quick, and he went, great. All right, let's go to sleep. So we went to sleep. But that night I had a dream. 
And in the dream, I was playing, we grew up on a, a small home, but it had beautiful wild flower fields behind us. And so in my dream, we were playing, about 10 of us, all my own kind of aged children, boys and girls, playing in the fields with the wild grass growing up around our knees. And it was the most joyous, wonderful feeling of this peace and this joy. I thought, this is the best play date ever. And all of a sudden, we were invited by this guy who was playing with us to sit down in a circle. And he started to make daisy chains with us. You know what daisy chains are? Just these wild flowers just making into daisy chains. And again, this joy and this peace and it was overwhelming. And then all of a sudden, this guy was sitting opposite me in the circle. And I remember in my dream, he caught my attention and looked at me straight into my eyes and I think straight into my soul. And he said, Gare, I will never leave you. And I woke up and I had met Jesus. It started my journey of knowing this man called Jesus. I ran into my mum's room, my parents' room the next day, and I said, I had a dream, I think I met Jesus. And they didn't know quite what to say. I looked at my brother and said, what have you done? Um, <laughs> you know. But I want to encourage you guys, never get beyond that simple, I've met Jesus. No matter what other plans and strategies and visions that God gives you about what you're to do here, and God's got much for you to do, never get beyond, oh, that I may know him. And your life is a journey of growing in intimacy with Jesus. Never get beyond it. In the tradition of the early church, they introduced something called Lent. I don't know if you ever heard of Lent, but we're in the, series of, in the season of Lent right now in the early church. And Lent's got a bad rap because like, we give up stuff we like um, for no valid reason, it seems. Um, but Lent was originally introduced for a season before Easter, where the early church would go, knowing Jesus is our priority, let's take a season to evaluate our relationship with Jesus. Is there anything blocking our relationship with Jesus? Is there anything getting in the way? Because that's my highest priority, my highest ambition is to know him. So if I'm doing anything that is hindering my relationship with him, I want to stop it. Paul goes on. He says, not only do I want to know him, he goes on, look at verse 10. But that I may know also his, the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. He said, I don't want to just know Jesus, but I want to know what he's doing. I want to join him in what he's doing. I want to know the power of his spirit. I'm all about Jesus. Knowing him, and as Darren said, we do what he did. I want to know his spirit in my life. That I'm used, that I'm advancing the kingdom of God in my workplace, in my school, in my law firm, in my college, wherever it may be. I want to know him and tell others about him and advance Jesus' kingdom. That's why he says, oh, that I may share in his, huff, in his sufferings. He's not being a masochist. Ooh, I love to suffer. No. He's saying, look, I know that no advance of the kingdom goes unopposed. And therefore, if I'm truly about Jesus and knowing him, if I'm truly about advancing his kingdom, then I'm going to feel the resistance. And when I feel that resistance, I'm not going to go, woo, what's going on? I'm going, Jesus is working. You're going to feel resistance when you go to India, wherever. You're going to feel resistance because you're advancing the kingdom. And Paul says that's a beautiful resistance because we're all about Jesus and advancing his glory. It's so easy, is it not? 
when we are looking at ambitions to get our priorities wrong. That Paul had lots of ambitions. He wanted to plant churches. He wanted to encourage churches. He was a father of the faith. And he, but there was a first order, top priority, and he wanted to keep that at focus at all times. I remember reading this um, advert, hearing about this advert in a newspaper in Africa. It was called the East African Standard, and it reminded me of how often we get our priorities wrong. And it was a farmer who was looking for a potential wife, and he put a, an ad in the personal columns of this newspaper, and this is how he advertised. The man was a farmer from a town called Nanyuki, and so it says this, Nanyuki farmer seeks lady with tractor. <laughs> with view to companionship and possible marriage. Please send picture of tractor. <laughs> See, it's so easy to get our priorities wrong. And when we're talking about what is our ambition, our greatest ambition, we have all these other ambitions which are not wrong to be financially secure, to, to want to be maybe even famous, to want to be wealthy, to want to be the CFO, the CEO, to start your own enterprise, to kind of to start your own startup and exit in 10 years' time with an IPO and you get massive, whatever it may be. These ambitions are great, but they're only great if they ladder up to your ultimate ambition, which is to know Christ and extend His glory. See, if that's not at the top of whatever else you're doing in your life, these other things will end in your destruction because you'll realize they're not actually going to satisfy what you were hoping they would. But everything else, if they ladder up to, I want to be famous so I can extend the glory of Jesus Christ. I want to be wealthy because I want to give it all away and bless people around the world. I want to be in charge of this industry so I can shape this industry for the glory of God. Then you realize all this ambition has the favor of God on it because you're wanting His glory and His fame. Now, just a little check here. Don't, it doesn't work if you think, well, when I'm famous, then I'll put Jesus' glory at the top. Or when I'm wealthy, that's when I'll give away. These other ambitions never lad up to putting Jesus there. Putting Jesus there to begin with helps these other things grow. You'll never put Jesus at the top of your financial giving list when you're wealthy, if you're not putting him at the top of your financial giving list now. But Paul says gospel ambition is first and foremost Christ-centered. Secondly, he says gospel ambition is for the sake of others. Gospel ambition is for the sake of others. Earlier in Philippians, and we didn't look at this, but earlier in Philippians he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. So there's a difference between Paul in Paul, in saying there's selfish ambition and then there's gospel, other-centered ambition. See, selfish ambition is simply this. I have needs in my heart, in my soul. I've got a vacuum, I've got an emptiness in me that's craving for love, acceptance, satisfaction, value, meaning, security. That as I go through life, these are the deep desires, this is what's driving me, and I'm ambitious for various things because I believe that if I get these things, then I'll tr finally be satisfied. You know, if I become famous, then I'll feel loved. If I plant five churches, that's when I'm significant. 
If I become and get that promotion, that's when people will truly respect me. We all go through life. This is what sin does in our life. There's this hole in our life, and sin is simply the clambering after all these things, being ambitious for all these things to try and satisfy this deep hunger in our hearts. That's what selfish ambition is. But Paul goes on, and we'll see now, that Christ-centered ambition, gospel ambition, flows the other direction. Where Paul says, look, all of this was for rubbish, but that I may gain Christ. And what he's found in his life is Christ has become his satisfaction. Christ has given him his identity that he's always been longing for. Christ has become his security that his soul has been craving for. Christ has satisfied the deep hungers of his soul. So no longer does he have to reach out to be ambitious for these things because Christ has already met his hunger. And so Paul says, now my ambitions are no longer to fulfill my own appetites, but my ambitions can be for the glory of Christ and for the sake of others. Let's look at where Paul says that in verse 18. He says this, he says this For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is their destruction, for their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's saying this, look, that God is the belly, that you've got these appetites in your belly, not just for hunger and water, not for food and water, but you've got these deep desires in your soul for satisfaction, for value, to be loved. And he says, selfish ambition is when you set your mind on earthly things to try and satisfy those cravings. But he says, he says, your end is your destruction, See, two things will happen if you're ambitious for stuff to look great, to, to be famous, to be wealthy, to be significant. If all those things are there to satisfy this deep inner ache in your heart, two things will either happen. First of all, you'll be a really difficult person to live with. You'll be driven. You'll use everyone around you to ladder up to get your ambitious desires met. You'll start to become a workaholic. You'll start to use people as opposed to love people. You'll never be satisfied because guess what? You achieve one thing and then you realize it didn't quite satisfy. So you'll just keep on going up the ladder. More money, more promotion, more friends, bigger muscles, bigger other things. You'll be driven. And eventually, you'll move from being driven to being depressed. Because you'll realize eventually that actually none of this is working. None of this is working. Like You hear all these stories about people who finally make it to the top and realize there's nothing there. Jim Carrey once said, that the actor, he said, I wish everybody would become rich and famous so that they would know that it's not enough. And you end up in despair and you turn you from workaholism to alcoholism. Because you've got this old busyness and you suddenly are entertaining yourself constantly because you can't handle the silence of the ache of your soul is still empty. But when Christ comes, and this is what Paul had experienced, all of this thing was for loss. It was human excrement, but I have met Christ. And now my ambitions are about him because he has satisfied my soul. I remember when this happened to me. I met Christ when I was five, but I was going through, like probably all of you, but more so with me, just going through the ups and downs of walking with Christ and teenage years and rebelling and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that I had 
Never truly had Christ as the deep foundations of my cravings for satisfaction and significance. I realized this because I chose a career that was more in tune with if I get successful at this career, then I will be satisfied because I'll have people's respect and people's love. So I became a lawyer. Now, you're probably thinking, no, you'd never get people's respect that way, girl. But I did think at the time, no, actually, if I become a lawyer, no one had been a lawyer in my family ever. In the culture, in the school I was in, it was kind of up there with, if you become a lawyer, that's when people will truly value and respect you. You'll be a pillar of society. And there was a deep emptiness of significance in my own heart that Christ hadn't yet met. And so I went to law school, went to London. I became a corporate lawyer. I was working 60 to 80 hours every week, lots of weekends, and all driven by the fact of, I need to be significant. And one day, a really good friend of mine, who was a Christian friend, and we'd gone through law school together, came up to me, and you know that you have an honest, true, good friend when they say this to you. He came up to me and said, Gare, you're a good lawyer, but you're not a great one. You should do something else. Now, after I beat him up, <laughs> I realized he was loving me. Because he could see that I was building my life in the wrong direction, being ambitious for the wrong things out of a deep inner emptiness in my soul that I thought being a lawyer could fill. So I went back and in, an in this existential crisis in London, I've been practicing law now for six years, and I got on my knees and I realized Jesus, again, came into my room in a very profound moment, and he said, I want to be your significance. So law doesn't have to. I slowly started to piece back together my walk with the Lord and he became my significance and who I was in him and my identity with him. And I woke up from that journey of a few months and looked at the law and thought, oh, I hate the law. <laughs> See, there was, once you find Christ as your significance, once you put him as your value, you are then beautifully disoriented. <laughs> Because you may have found that you've been living for the wrong things for a long time. But you're free to go, Lord, then now what do you want to do with my life? Because I'm not looking for these things anymore because I've got you. But what do I do now? I went to law school. I got out of debt. I'm on, I'm on track to be a partner in a law firm. But I hate it. What do I do? It was beautifully disorienting. And some of you here today have been building your life on the wrong foundation, looking for value and significance, maybe from other people's expectations of you. But then Christ comes into your life and you find true value and significance and you start to go, oh my word, what do I do now? Because I don't need to please you anymore for my significance. And so I went home and someone gave me a book, very helpfully, um, to try and help me build my life again. It was called What Color Is Your Parachute? Have anyone ever heard of that book? It's a, basically a career counseling book where you look at your gifts, you do all these exercises. Because I didn't know myself because I had been so confused by selfish ambition. And I went through all these exercises and it showed me who I was. And it was so freeing. I thought, oh, yeah, I am a crap lawyer. This is great. <laughs> I can do something that I'm good at. And I moved into a different profession. And I loved it. And it was, it's interesting. 
you start then to realize, I don't care what other people think. Christ has set me free to enter into truly what he wants me to be. And I remember I left law, and I left law to go into marketing, into brand management. And I was doing these corporate M&A transactional deals, which people thought were sexy and cool and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly, I was going totally the opposite direction to be a brand manager of Tide laundry detergent. <laughs> where I was sitting in focus groups with mostly women teaching me their laundry habits. And I remember my friends who are lawyers looking at me going, How, don't you have any respect? <laughs> And I was going, but I love it. This is amazing. This is epic. But I was, Christ has set me free from wanting to worship at the God of ambition to satisfy. Because I could just worship him. Are you building your ambition on something that only Christ can truly satisfy? Number three, gospel ambition is also Christ given. Is Christ given. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained all this. So my ambitions are unmet, but he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Uh, in my translation, it's, it's actually clumsy. Um, in the NIV, which you normally use, it's much better. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which he took hold of me. So there's a that which Christ took hold of you for. He says, I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. So when Christ took hold of me, he had a that which he wanted me to fulfill. He had a that that he had predestined before the creation of the world that Darren or Brooke or John or whoever, this is what I'm creating them to do. This is what only they can do. This is what I'm designing them in the womb to have a certain personality or multiple personalities or whatever it may be. Personality, gift shape, experience, because I've got that for them to do. And get about that, don't get about other things. Because the favor of God on your life, as you join him in what he's doing, is as you join him in that, you will start to feel his pleasure on your life. Do you remember that movie, Chariots of Fire? I'm showing my age. But there was a, there were, a story is, very briefly, a bunch of English guys getting ready for the 1924 Berlin Olympics. And there was a Christian and struggling with, you know, do I run on the Sabbath? There was this great point where he was running around the track, training for the Olympics, and you, the voiceover was him saying, God has made me for a purpose. And he felt it was China, to be a missionary in China, which he later then did. He said, God's made me for a purpose, China. But he's also made me fast. And when I run, that's when I feel his pleasure. See, there's a that in your life that when you enter into that thing, you're going to be running so on fire for Jesus and so in tune with how he's created you that all you do is wake up and you feel the wind of his pleasure behind you. There's a unique that for each one of you. There's a unique that corporately for this church. And Lizzie and I have come in this morning and we feel the Lord's pleasure on you. The question then is, okay, well, how do, I, how do I know what that is for me? The golden question. It's very complex in the Christian world to what is God's guidance, what do I do with my life, and all this kind of stuff. Well, I want to simplify it for you and say this. 1% of you will be told by God what your that is. <laughs> through some kind of prophecy, through some kind of dream, 1% of you. 
That's not me. But there are stories of that, right? Jackie Pullinger. Anybody who knows who Jackie Pullinger is? So Jackie Pullinger was a missionary to Hong Kong. And she felt God call her to be a missionary. And she was English. And she went to her pastor, like Darren, and said, what do I do with this calling to be a missionary? So the pastor gave amazing advice. Don't ever do this advice, but amazing advice. He said, well, go buy a one-way ticket on a boat that goes as far as you can and just wait for God to tell you when to get off. So I think he had an ulterior motive, personally. <laughs> if Darren ever says that to you, you know what he's really trying to say. But so she did. So she did. She got on the boat and went as far as she could. And on the way, they docked in Hong Kong. That's a long boat ride. And that wasn't the final destination, but bam, she felt God say, get off the boat. And she went into the slums, what was called the wall city at the time, kind of the epicenter of drugs and prostitution and heroin addiction. And she served Christ in that context and through the power of the Holy Spirit spent the rest of her life and she's still there ministering to those people. Now only 1% of us will have that experience. And I think the danger, and I'm a card-carrying charismatic, I've been in the charismatic church all my life, but there's a danger in prophecy and that's this. Prophecy, we're always open to it, it's beautiful. But if you're waiting for a prophecy, you'll probably never do anything with your life. Because only 1% of us ever get that. I've never had that kind of sense of direction. But I still feel the Lord's pleasure and on my life because 99% of us simply have to do this to work out the that in our lives. Okay, you ready? I'll give you a simple formula, which is this. Know your gifts. Apply them in your passions, in your current circumstances. Know your gifts. Apply them in your passions, in your current circumstances. Let me walk that through with the Paul as an example. So Paul knew that he was really good at some things. He was an amazing leader. We read of his story before he came to Christ. He was an incredible leader at killing Christians. He was awesome at it. He, would, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. For the persecutor of the church, he was zealous, man. So he was a, he was a leader. He was an instigator. He was a catalyst. So he knew who he was. And guess what? When he became a Christian, those gifts didn't change, but his passions did. He just applied his gifts in a new context. Instead of killing Christians, he would build them up. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Help build my church. It's quite a U-turn. So he went, okay, I've built and destroyed some churches and Christians. Now, using those same gifts, I'm going to apply them to building up the church. Now, the third thing is where lots of people in today's society, I think, get confused. Paul wasn't waiting for the perfect circumstances to outwork his gifts and his passions. He just did it wherever he was. He wasn't waiting for a paycheck before he entered into his destiny. So he said, right, I'm going to get on the road. I'll make a few tents on the side to get money, and I will go about building up churches. I love doing it. That's, God called me with gifts to do that. He's given me a passion for it. So I'm going to do it. And even when he's in prison, he goes, great, how can I still do that in my current circumstances? So he's in prison awaiting execution. He's literally chained to two Roman soldiers. Every four hours, they change guard, and he's there. And he says, well, okay, God, you've called me to be a leader. You've called me to be a catalyst. You've called me to, to build other people up. I want to build up churches, so how do I do that? 
So he calls his buddy Epaphroditus and Timothy and he says this, okay, all right, write this down. And he starts to dictate lots of letters to outwork his calling. See, we make a mistake sometimes of waiting for the circumstances to open up before we can outwork our gifting and our passions. But the burden of your calling was never meant to fall 100% on what you get as a paycheck. It's very, actually, it's interesting, it's a very developed world problem that we think that we will hold off on our calling until we get paid to do it. See, 99% of church history, 99% of the whole world even now, don't really have a choice of what job to do. But that didn't stop people entering into their calling in Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you are, you may be unemployed thinking, I don't want to be unemployed. Absolutely, God doesn't want you to be unemployed. And God will, through prayer, will get you back into employment. But don't wait to get back into employment in order to outwork your career and your calling in Christ. Do it now. I say to people in LA, we have a load of amazing actors and musicians. I say, look, you know if you're called by Christ, if that's your that, then you'll be gifted at it. And just make sure you are gifted, by the way. Make sure, make sure you're gifted. This is your passion. But don't wait for a gig before you do it. Act. Find some place to outwork who you are in your artistry. Because God has called you. When you're running, you'll feel his pleasure. Do it now. Lots of my friends know that if I wasn't paid to preach, guess what I'd still be doing? I'd still be preaching. I'd still be telling people about Jesus. I had a dad who was a church pastor and a planter. For the first 10 years of my life, he was planting churches all over the north of England, and his day job was laundry delivery. Guys, God's got that for you. Work out what he's called you to do. Okay, I'm galloping on. I'm galloping on. Forgive me. Okay, number four. Gospel ambition is challenging. Look at this. Verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But verse before that, he says, not that I've already obtained this, but I'm pressing on. See, gospel ambitions will always be big and bold and above what you think you can do in your own strength. Because that's the point. Because you need to rely on the Spirit in you. See, Paul's calling by the Lord was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, just think for a minute. That wasn't a little group who lived 30 miles out of Jerusalem. That was the whole of the non-Jewish world. That's a big plan. Jesus said to his disciples before he went up to join his father, he said, look, I've got one little ambition for you. That is to go and make disciples of all nations. See, I think it's beautiful to step into what God is calling you to do because you know when you're stepping into it because you, you kind of gulp and go, really? Me? Absolutely you. So you've got a vision here which is way too small in Long Beach as it is in heaven. That's a great start. That's a great start. And you should start there. You should start with your neighbor. But guess what? I believe God's got an anointing and a favor on this community that you should be talking about in the world as it is in heaven, in the nations as it is in heaven. That's the calling on your life. Now you're going to go, yeah, Long Beach, I don't know if we can even do Long Beach. Yeah, you can't do Long Beach. That's the point. You've got a big God who's coming alongside you going, join me in these amazing plans that I have. See, many people, when they discover the gospel of grace, 
get confused at this point and go, well, hang on a minute. How does this actually fit with what God does and what I do? If it's all by grace, the gospel of grace, and we, you know, God's got great stuff to do, but isn't this, hang on a minute, these ambitions, how does that mesh with what I'm supposed to be doing and what he's supposed to be doing? Paul, I think, in this context, gives us two clues. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. He says, one thing, this is what I do. First of all, he says, look, the grace of God has called me into his family, called me into a relationship, called me into a destiny, and there's one thing I do, and that's I'm fully committed to it. One thing. We respond to God's grace by going, I'm all in, Jesus, for what you have. As in Long Beach, as it is in heaven, I'm all in, I'm fully committed. In the nations, in India, as it is in heaven, I'm all in, I'm fully committed. I'm either going myself or I'm financially partnering with what's going on. I'm all in, I'm fully committed. Martina Navratilova once said, was asked a question about being involved in tennis. And she said, I'm not involved in tennis. I'm committed. Think of ham and eggs for breakfast. The chicken is involved. The pig is committed. <laughs> That's what Paul is like. I'm committed. I'm literally committed. I'm chained. I may die for this. Fully committed. But also fully working hard. Working hard. Look at verse 13 again. I want to just dwell on this for a minute. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made up my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's the imagery of an athlete straining, working with everything he's got to finish the line. The Lord once told me what it meant to work hard and still rely on the grace of God. Because I wrestled with that for a while. I don't want to ever be about works righteousness and works performance, but I, am I supposed to be lazy and wait for you to do everything for me? And there was one day in Raleigh, we used to live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were going to mow our lawn, and we had one of those heavy rotary lawnmowers. I could barely push it, but my daughter, who was five at the time, said, Dad, can I help? You know, and she went, I want to help. So I said, yeah, come on out, come on out. You put your, hand, you put your hands on the handlebars here. And I said, look, Amy, let's do this together. And whenever you push, I'm going to push. But whenever you release your hands, I'm going to stop because I want to do this together. And so she grabbed onto the handlebars and you could see her pushing. She wasn't budging it an inch. But I would then come in behind her and together we'd push the lawnmower around the lawn. And as I was doing that, I felt the Lord say, this is how we work. I'm your dad. I could do this all by myself. But I want to do it together with my son. Now, if you take your hands off and just stop working, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop. Because we have a good, good father, not a sugar daddy. <laughs> See, sugar daddies reward laziness. And they don't care about relationship. Our father is all about relationship. He wants to do it with us. You're partnering with Christ in the renewal of all things. And so Paul puts it this way in Colossians. He writes this. We want to present everyone perfect in the relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. So I want to encourage you that what God has done 
here at the garden in the short years that you've been working has been due to a lot of hard work. Absolutely a lot of hard work. But Darren and Alex and all the leadership team here know, and you all know, that your hard work absolutely is like my little daughter Amy trying to push that lawnmower. We're not budging an inch if God is not partnering. So much so that at the end of it, even though God high-fives you and goes, hey, son, we did this together, you kind of high-five and go, yeah, I know what, you know what? But this is all for your glory. This is all your work, Jesus. Finally, and in conclusion, we'll end on this. Gospel ambition brings contentment in disappointment. You know when your ambitions are of the gospel for Christ because when your ambitions don't work out, you're still contented and not devastated. You see, Paul later on in the next chapter, we didn't read it, but he says, look, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. Paul had great ambitions to go to Spain That's what his journey was next, and he never made it there. He was in prison, and he was able to write, I'm still pressing on, I'm still going for it, but I've learned to be content. And this is the true sign, I want to end on this now, is you can be content and fiercely ambitious, and even when disappointment comes, and it comes to us all, ambitions that you're hoping for, things that you're praying for, it's not working out quite how it was meant to be, but you can be content because Paul knew ultimately This is his ambition and not mine. I'm running after him, not the results. And he's my father, and if I, he's got me in his hands, I trust him. And if he so deems for this situation not to be fulfilled the way I was hoping, then guess what? I'll trust him. Because all he's asked me to do is follow him and leave the results to him. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.
hearts. We need your spirit. 